The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, put the dog out and crank up the chili peppers. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 386 with guests Don Hannon and Kevin Kennedy from Internology, recorded live Tuesday, September 30th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man whose electric piano doesn't quite fit in the Bulgarian air passenger plane's overhead compartment. Carl Franklin! Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. I'm here. I'm back from my tour in Europe, my the first part of conference season anyway. I just got back from uh, doing SDN in Amsterdam. And then uh, I had a brief stint in Krakow, Poland, which I'll talk about in a minute. And then over to Sofia, Bulgaria for DevReach. And we'll be having shows from those conferences uh, coming up here pretty soon. Um, But I do want to talk about my experiences in Krakow. That was amazing. First of all, the reason I went is because Tim Huckabee got invited to do a user group meeting over there, the the Polish RD and uh, one of his coworkers who works in Poland invited him to come do a presentation. So um, he knew that I was going there and invited me to come along with him. And so the first thing that we did was the old uh, fill the vodka bottle with water stunt. So he filled a, vo- a bottle of vodka with water. I filled a bottle of Jack Daniels with iced tea and put it in my bag. And he says, now I know what you you Poles think of Americans, that we can't hold our liquor or anything like that. We're here to prove you wrong. Right, Carl? I go, right. I pull out the bottles, boom, tilt it up, about half the bottle, and then made a horrible face, and people were kind of nervous. They were laughing a little bit, and some were amazed. We finally came clean, though, but it was a lot of fun. And we'll let you in on the fun in a future version of Dot and Rocks, but I wanted to mention that because... We are, Richard and I are interviewing uh, two guys from Internology today on .NET Rocks. Our guests today are the powerhouse duo behind Internology's applications uh, that you might have heard about Tim Huckabee talking about, Dan Hannon and Kevin Kennedy. Dan is a lead software engineer at Internology in Carlsbad, California. He's currently working with a client to come up with a next-generation enterprise application centered around data visualization. Before diving headfirst into WPF the past couple of years, Dan worked on both sides of the wire, writing occasionally connected click-once WinForms smart clients for the front end, as well as back-end technologies such as WCF, Azimax Web Services, and SQL. 
He likes to try to forget his early years, which were spent hassling with C++, MFC, and COM and all that yucky stuff. When not busy cutting code, Dan spends his life cycles golfing, snowboarding, and camping. Uh, we're also here talking with Kevin Kennedy. Since graduating from MIT in 1999 with a degree in computer science, he's written software for a number of industries, including healthcare, biotech, finance, and defense. The technologies have leveraged various platforms with a mix of web and rich client applications, but his efforts have consistently focused on the presentation layer. This has involved layout, usability, rich controls, animation, and 3D interactive content. Additionally, he's had the opportunity to lead development teams, including one that incorporated team members from four continents. His uh, research interests include user interaction, procedural graphics, artificial intelligence, and computational aesthetics. He lives in Cardiff-by-the-Sea, a beach town in northern San Diego County, and spends the majority of his free time with his family or on his mountain bike. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hi, guys. How are you doing? So your voices are kind of similar. Uh, identify yourselves. All right. This is Dan Hannon. Okay. And this is Kevin Kennedy. So were you guys involved in that scripts project that we talked so much about with uh, Tim Huckabee, the visualization of cancer molecules and annotation? Uh um, I, I was uh, involved with that project pretty extensively. Kevin, so so tell us a, a little bit about your involvement with it. Was that your foray into WPF? Because that was an early project, wasn't it? That was. That was. That was before um, uh, when everything was still in beta. Um, we we started off uh, just trying to view molecules uh, using the WPF 3D stuff and. Uh, Every time there was a new uh, beta out, I would need to re rewipe wipe my box and rebuild it again with the the new bits. Wow, that's got to um, get old. It did. I got pretty quick at it though, and I, I generally <laughs> generally keep my Visual Studio and stuff pretty vanilla, so it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but the, you know, you'd use a feature. I remember at one point there was some screen space lines 2D class or something that was in, and then they decided to pull it out. And uh, you know, you had to rewrite some code, but it actually wasn't too bad. There's a you know n enough community around it already that uh, it, it, I was able to get questions answered and such. Not good. It seems like I mean everybody knows about internology from the point of view of stuff like the Scripps app. These really sort of bleeding edge. You, everything was a beta kind of development. Is that all you guys do? Like you're just building the very very newest stuff. Uh, there, there's other projects as well. I come from a little bit uh, less hardcore of uh, early bleeding edge point of view. I, I've worked on kind of more normal .NET development, WinForms, ASP.NET, um, writing, uh, you know, occasionally disconnected clients, um, wrote some CRM applications with uh, both ASP.NET web-based as well as um, rich client, you know, WinForms apps. But, Dan, I know you're working on a project that's WPF-related, which, again, would I would say is pretty far out there. Granted, WPF shipped a while ago, but uh, you know, there's a lot of folks that do a lot of WPF work. Well, what, and I know certainly Kevin did, because if he did scripts work, that's all WPF, or a big chunk of it anyway. Uh, what sort of stuff are you doing at WPF? Right, yeah, I guess I have a somewhat slanted view on things, because here at Internology, almost everybody's working on something, you know, that's released, uh, you know, from Microsoft in the last year or two, so when I say I'm working on more normal stuff, that's to me WPF, but... That's not... Um, exactly, yeah, so I, yeah, for the past year and a half, I've been doing WPF exclusively, um, writing... Uh, for a client, a uh, large provider of healthcare somewhere east of Carlsbad, we'll say. Um, Which writing, means anything uh, in Japan. Exactly. Uh, I guess we'll go east from the west coast, right? Uh, writing uh, basically an application that centers around data visualization, real-time um, data, charts, graphs, pi, you know, um, very time-centered, showing all kinds of data as it comes into the system and, and allowing the user to choose from many, many different visualizations. And probably, as you know, the WPF fits perfectly into that, uh, that scope, given its ability to use, you know, things like data templates and various other techniques to 
show data, the same underlying data in many different you know views or formats. That's cool because you know I poked around the uh, Silverlight Internology site and there was that sales forecast video, which looks very WPFE as well, and it is, seems to be all about data visualization. Right. We've we've toyed with we've brought in you know ideas from all over the place, both inside Internology. People had ideas on you know ways to visualize data, whether it's you know three D, two D graphs charts, et cetera, or even out on the web. I mean, there's tons of sites that uh, talk about that, all those concepts and what, which techniques work and which ones don't. Um, the fun part has been having to take those ideas, but then just turn around and implement those in WPF. And so that either means, a lot of times that means writing a custom control, you know, that takes a some collection of data, some uh, as an item source, perhaps like a like an items control in WPF, and and rendering it in some specialized way. So that's writing a bunch of C sharp code and and talking to the WPF layer to say plot this here, render this there, things like that. Are you guys? Uh, tell me each of you whether you're uh, you know hardcore Notepad XAML writers or do you prefer the tools? Uh, this is Dan. So yeah, I, I go for pretty much the the normal route of Visual Studio. Um, I've dabbled in uh, Blend and things. I, I have some thoughts on uh, what the problems we've run into with Blend in the in the real life here and the real projects. But yeah. so I I play around with Blend to try to get you know some maybe some animations or some paths or something that's. Uh, prohibitively difficult to write in XAML, you know, by hand, and then basically end up copying that over to Visual Studio as my playground. Um, once in a while, I'll use things like CACSAML from Ravi at uh, Identity Mind that uh, help me kind of quickly visualize something and, you know, type it out in XAML and see the results immediately and not have to suffer a compile cycle. But for the most part, Visual Studio... I, I just wow. keep wishing that each uh, each version of Visual Studio, I keep wishing that the design surface would be better and better. I I, I don't want you to get away from this. Uh, Identity Mind? What is this tool? No, Identity Mind, uh, there's a guy named Robbie Ingebrigtsen from, that used to work at Identity Mind. I'm not sure if he's there anymore. Um, I met him actually at the client that we're currently working with, and he wrote a tool called Caxaml, K-A-X-A-M-L, I believe it's called. Oh yeah. So if you Google for KAXAML, and it's a nice tool that's just basically plain Jane editor on the bottom. It's split in half vertically, top and bottom. And you type uh, XAML in the bottom, and you have a setting to how long to delay. But within one or two seconds, whatever you set it to, it'll just render the XAML for you in the top half. Nice. KAXAML.com. That's, that's, that's the site. Yep. And so he put out a recent version for that's compatible with Silverlight bits and things recently. So anyway, that's a nice way to uh, you know type in a bunch of XAML. It's got some IntelliSense now, and uh, so I tend to go over there to to try something out real quick and get you know uh, five or ten layers of uh, child parent-child hierarchy going in XAML, and then just copy and paste it over into Visual Studio and know that it'll look right when it actually builds and runs. Only five or ten layers. <laughs> yeah, you know, you want to. You don't want to go too deep, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like this. I, I did not know about this tool. Thanks for for calling it out because it seems like the split between Blend and Notepad. Exactly. Yeah, you can't. You can only type so much XAML in Notepad and just hope and pray that it's actually gonna, you know, not give any errors when you paste it in. So the Kexaml immediate feedback. Um, there's some coloring things in there, snippet support, and things like that. So nice tool to have in your back pocket. Are there are there any other tools you use besides Blend and Caxaml and in Visual Studio? Uh there's a one called Style Snooper that I use for um basically whenever you're going to start with a control template like say a list box but you want it to look differently, you're going to start with the built-in control template that Lispox comes with in the WPF class library. But you need to kind of start with what it currently looks like and then tweak it from there. Or I guess sometimes you'd approach it the opposite and say, I don't even want a normal Lispox. I want to draw something different. But there's a tool called Style Snooper that uh, 
you can point it at any assembly that has a bunch of controls in it, and then it'll give you a drop-down box of all those controls, and you just pick a list box, and it'll show you the control template in XAML Sweet. that you can suck out and you know paste into your editor of choice and go from there, start tweaking. That's a lot of times when I'll use Kexaml, too. They copy and paste that over to Kexaml, make some changes, see what it looks like immediately. So iterate on that cycle quite a few times. Wow, it sounds good. How how long did the uh, I I know we talked about the scripts app before, but um, how long did did it take to get up to speed with WPF for so that you could actually get something working? So the you know in, like I said before, initially I, I was focusing on sort of just displaying molecules in 3D. The 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 3D API in um, WPF is is somewhat unlike the other. Uh, API the, the other parts of the the platform um, the, uh, the 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 WPF stuff isn't terribly unlike um, the API found in DirectX or XNA or something like that. Essentially, in 3D space, everything is just triangles, and you need to communicate to the graphics card the the vertices and the edges, um, and you end up pushing those over as buffers to enhance speed. So most of the work for rendering the molecules was more just math in terms of figuring out how you take a, the XYZ position of atoms and turn it into smooth sort of representational surfaces and then how you tessellate them into polygons. So initially I, I was more focused on sort of the math and the, the 3D side, which is, was more typical 3D coding, um, although it was it's um, a bit easier because it's a uh, retained mode and it sort of remembers things that you set. You don't have to redraw each frame. Um, but the WPF itself, I, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, it certainly took me some time to come up to speed. It was, a, it was definitely a different way of thinking about it. Uh, when I started, there were no books. There was no you know, Sparkle or Blend tool to work with. Um, and there certainly wasn't any, any Visual Studio support. Uh, so to answer that question earlier about the, uh, you know, what do I use to code WPF, um, I, I've somewhat learned the tools. I, I, I still, I still find most of the time I use Visual Studio like Notepad, and kind of just view the designer surface as a view only um, viewer until it breaks down. Uh, when I, if I want to prototype something quickly, especially something more visual that might have uh, custom shapes or something, I would use Blend and then generally cut and paste the the generated XAML into Visual Studio and sort of hand tweak it from there. I got a feeling a lot of people do that. They start out in Blend, working with uh, you know just the rudimentary shapes and getting something that works, and then transfer it over to Visual Studio to. Yeah, I think that's a, a fairly common workflow. The um, uh, with the with Blend, it's hard to open up an existing Visual Studio project and edit it. That's sort of the the vision, but it's not quite there yet. So in reality, what happens is you end up quickly prototyping stuff or, or creating the art in Blend and then merging it into, uh, you know, making it more interactive in Visual Studio uh, using code behind or something like that. But doesn't that basically mean it's very hard to get back to Blend after that initial iteration? It definitely is. At least that's been my experience. Um, uh, a, a lot of the stuff I've done has been more um, procedurally uh, done where... where the, the graphics were rich enough that I kind of needed to do everything in code anyways. Right. Uh, Dan has a little bit more experience in trying to blend a project after it's been um, established. Yeah, we've had uh, quite a few roadblocks in that area. We, um, our solution, I'd say, in Visual Studio for this project we're working on is probably uh, 10 or 12 projects worth of, of code. And um, probably after we added the second or third one, all of a sudden Blend starts to break down in terms of being able to open the solution and let designers even go in and look at, uh, you know, styles or templates or anything, which is really unfortunate. You know, we're hoping that story gets better because obviously the designer slash uh, developer workflow, you'd want the, you want the designers to be able to go in and tweak styles and, and templates and things and not have to monkey with code or even open Visual Studio. And that's definitely the goal, I know, from Microsoft's point of view, but it's just not there yet. There's 
a lot of things that you can do in that are valid, you know, they'll compile and work just fine at runtime. But um, since Blend is kind of a, from what I gather, and we've done some research on it, it's it's interpreting a lot of your code rather than actually building it and loading right. it. So, so it's it's not able to follow the exact train of thought that the that a real compiler will, you know, and load the assemblies in the correct fashion such that it can load uh, base libraries and custom controls and things from other assemblies. So, so it sounds like there's like a complexity threshold you hit, and then Blend just can't take it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like in one of these days at one of these conferences, I'd love to see, you know, a, a demo of, of a blend project that's more than, you know, one C-sharp project and, and actually see it actually go through. So maybe I'll raise my hand at PDC or something and, and ask for that uh, demo. So Yeah, but it's yeah. an interesting problem that you just, you're going to hit a point, this all demos well, but, and sample apps work, but if, once you get to something complicated enough that it's real... Now the tools are really struggling. Right, exactly. Yeah, we've we've taken some somewhat extreme lengths to even do um, sort of farm out some of the resource files. So in a typical WPF app, you'll have XAML resource only files called resource dictionaries, and so we will sometimes share those across, you know, a source tree um, hierarchy, such that in a test app that is blendable. Uh, supposedly uh, be able to open that same resource dictionary and tweak some styles and get the colors right and all that from the designer point of view and then use those same XAML files in, you know, suck them into the real project just right. the same way as a, as a merge dictionary. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik. Our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD controls for WPF and RAD controls for Silverlight. That's right. If you started building next generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, they have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now, that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. I often see the, get the sense that XAML is almost too powerful, that you can put so much into that code that you really sort of violate the lines between what is presentation what are, and what is uh, business logic. Uh, I don't know how much work you've done in that particular area, that just trying to sort out where should things live. Yeah, I struggle with that a lot. I know. So Kevin, Kevin and I have been on the same teams, and then we've been on different teams and stuff. And it was fun to have Kevin join our project for a little while because um, he brings a fresh new look at it. And he, he, as he says, he tends to be more of the code centric point of view, where you can certainly change a, a button look or color or something from code behind. But then some of the benefit of XAML is you know you can have some triggers in there and things. So. There is uh, some differing thoughts out there in the world on how much, you know, with triggers being very powerful, you can do a lot of quote-unquote logic in your XAML yes. and have, you know, this thing show up or that thing rotate over here or, you know, a bunch of functionality that's all in triggers. And what I'm finding is that um, what it's doing to our project is it just makes it a lot harder to, the more triggers and functionality you have in your, in your XAML, makes it that much more difficult for another person on the team to jump right in and, and fix a bug or, or enhance a piece of functionality. Um, it's okay if, if you're the one that wrote the triggers because you kind of know or you remember kind of how you did it. Or, but hunting around in triggers for a reason why this button doesn't show up is still kind of gory, and there, there's not a good way that a UI can show you yet that this is why this thing is not showing up. Yeah, that that sounds very debug resistant. That it would be very challenging to actually walk through and see this is when that occurs. It is. You also get a lot of problems with data binding too. It, it, it's it's a lot of times it's not obvious why uh, 
things are breaking down when you're trying to bind something. And, and, and I guess there's, there's tools that you can use to sort of help you debug that, but it's still not an ideal experience. So, Dan, this uh, cutting-edge WPF app that you're working on now, what, uh, what can you tell us about it? Um, let's see. Most of, uh, of what I can talk about is just the fact that it's all centered around, um, you know, data visualization and um, bringing in data, you know, data happening, new data showing up all the time um, and, and wanting to add that to the graph that you're currently showing or the table that you're currently looking at. So, so real-time updates of, of the displays that you're looking at, as well as um, a bunch of controls centered around um, laying out all the data so that you, we've done a bunch of work in, with custom panels in WPF that, you know, a standard panel is like a, a stack panel that will just display something vertically as you go down or horizontally, depending so on the orientation. Is this data like your standard business intelligence kind of application? It's uh, yeah, it's, it's patient data. So yeah, the, the, we're in the medical vertical. So okay. I guess I didn't mention that before. So right. yeah, we're in the uh, medical industry. So we're showing patient data, um, re- more or less real time, and we're trying to solve the the big problem of it, it's kind of a next generation uh, electronic patient record type app, and it's um, we're trying to solve the needle in the haystack problem, right? So you have maybe an eighty year old guy that comes in to. Uh, have you take a look at them? The, the clinician or the doctor says, well, geez, let me look at your history. And what's the best way to visualize 80 years worth of data of history such that you can find something that gives you a clue as to what's going on with this patient? No kidding. I, I, think wow. some of the, I was on the team briefly with Dan, and uh, I think some of the most interesting research that he did into it was sort of how you represent uh, chronological data. Like he was saying, you have a patient who's 80 years old, you know, obviously, when he got chickenpox as a child is less important than his chest pain from last month. So how do, you, how do you sort of focus on the more recent stuff? How do you show sparse data where you might have groupings or clusters of events? Um, do, you, you know, do you use a logarithmic time scale? Uh, and, and Dan has gone through literally dozens of different um, takes on how to, how to create a, a sort of timeline control to represent that data chronologically. Yeah, and it's, and it's also how does a doctor think about this problem? How do you help put the dots together for a doctor to to come to a diagnosis? Right, right. We we've gone through all different iterations, like Kevin was saying. We went through the first incarnation of our our timeline was you know just a bunch of dots, and so it gives you some idea of what's going on because you look for clusters of dots and know oh, okay, there's a lot of activity here, but and then it kind of shows you that he went for ten years without coming in, and you know some of that's useful, but in this big cluster of dots, you know, all jammed together and drawing over themselves, what what else can you tell me or how do I zoom into that area quickly and easily and, you know, all the time showing the details of that data in, say, another couple windows or other views. And so we've done a ton of work where we coordinate the displays all based on time, whether it's a calendar control or a timeline control or things like that, with the display of the data, you know, the the graphs or the charts or the tables and things that you're showing. So it's been fun. It's been a, a huge challenge to try to find that needle in the haystack, and we're still going. We're still working on it. So what is is this application unique in that the data is real-time, sort of like uh, any any kind of real-time monitor or... I think the the most unique part about it is the I guess this might not be super unique, but the challenge is that the the, the number of ways you want to slice the data. So we've right. had to go through a bunch of different ways of um, kind of keeping the data in various types of collections and things, either WPF specific or even just .NET, uh, you know, collection types and things. Trying to prepare the data such that it's ready for fairly performant display. Um, we can't just have a flat collection of data that's yeah. organized by time because then I want to come along and show you just the data that's related to vitals, you know, vital sets or, you know, uh, lab panels and things like that. So we've done a bunch of work with, um, you know, so you have collection views in, in WPF that, that seem real nice and a nice way to take a, a source collection of, of I enumerable of T, okay, so you've got a bunch yeah. of data 
and then you can filter it and sort it and group it using uh, an interface called iCollection View. And then a bunch of the built-in controls from WPF can display as their item source something coming from iCollection View. We started down that route, but it quickly broke down because if you have 10 iCollection Views, one for grouping by uh, you know dates and one for grouping by labs or categories and one for grouping by something else, every time you want to refresh the data, you're looping through each one of those collection views and refreshing them. And so there's some limitations on how many of these things you can have and still be fairly performant in displaying things. So, so we've kind of had to go our own way, our own route, and do some things with hash tables and dictionaries and things like that that, that kind of do our own homegrown um, sorting and filtering on these things. Now, you guys also do surface development, right, both of you? I, I've done it pretty extensively. I, I think Dan's touched it a little bit. Okay. Um, uh, was the is the is this just a pure WPF uh, platform, or you know, with some added stuff to handle the the touch and, and all that, or what's that like? So there's essentially two different uh, layers to the API that you're able to integrate with. Um, a, a real a real quick primer on the surface is that essentially it's. Uh, it's an output device and an input device. And as an output device, it is a 1024 by 768 resolution monitor. As an input device, it's a set of uh, five cameras that look at the surface uh, and process a black and white image that they virtually merge in together into one. And it's actually a lower res than a 2024 by 768. But essentially, it's a, it's a multi-step process. First, it, the, for the input, it pulls in a raw buffer of grayscale data uh, for the surface, uh, for the 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 area, uh, the touchable area of the surface, and then it it does a, a number of uh, machine vision algorithms on it that I, I couldn't begin to describe. But essentially, the next step is it is it filters it to a black and white uh, a binary image, and from there it does uh, you know shape recognition, and it's able to d- distinguish between uh, a, a finger, which has sort of a unique uh, signature to it in that uh, there's a a circular region where it touches, but then there's also sort of a a shadow of where the finger comes up. So you're able to get orientation uh, information from it, as well as, um, you know, the size and and shape of of just sort of a a random blob object. Now, you said there was a series of cameras. Are we talking like software cameras or or real cameras? There's five hardware cameras. Um, One for each uh, quadrant of the screen, and one that does uh, infrared to, I believe, to negate uh, the glare values uh, that you get from lights or from the projector. I'm not really sure. Um, but as I was saying, there's two layers to the API. So the, the lower la- layer, which is designed to sen- uh, primarily to be used through XNA, uh, exposes the... Um, the, the camera buffer, so you can get an image, uh, that, a grayscale image of what the cameras see. So it only, because of the diffuse surface of the material of the screen, uh, it only sees maybe a centimeter, uh, anything touching the surface and maybe a, a shadow from things a centimeter away. So if you lean your face over, it's not going to have uh, a picture of your face. But if you put your hand on, you can see the, the, the lines and the creases in your skin. Um, but it, you're able at the, using the, the core uh, layer of the API, you're able to get access to those images. So you can get an actual outline of a hand, say. Wow. The higher level API, which can be used both by XNA or WPF, um, but is generally used by WPF, is the, the post uh, machine vision step, in, in, which, in which case everything has been filtered into three things. Everything is either a, uh, a byte tag, which is the stickers that uh, do device recognition. Uh, it's a finger touch, which has an orientation, as I said before, because a uh, finger has sort of a, a unique signature to it. And then everything else is, is processed as a, uh, as a blob, um, which is a, a, an ellipse that has a major minor axis and a location and an angle. So if I were to put my hand down, um, you know, a palm open, fingers spread out, if I were to access it via the, the core layer, I could get, an, you know, an obvious image of a hand, uh, that would look kind of blurry in, in the grayscale version or a black and white uh, pixelated version. Uh, or I could get the image process version, which would generally be 
probably an ellipse blob for the my palm, and maybe a, a blob ellipse for uh, each of my fingers. The, the the usefulness of the core layer allows you to do you know video processing maybe on the um, the the core image that it's capturing, or in theory you could even do something like uh, image processing yourself to recognize a, 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 your own type of barcode, say. Uh, although the resolution's not that great, so you know you couldn't really do a you know a UPC barcode. Um, but it, it, most people are doing development against the, the higher-level API where they're just interacting with uh, contacts, touches, uh, and, and using the WPF objects. The, the big difference between WPF and the surface is that on the surface, there's no mouse emulation. So you can't take an existing WPF app and just expect it to run on the surface. Okay. And, and the reason that they did that was because, you know, in order to... to have software on the surface, it really needs to be redesigned with multi-touch and uh, sort of large type and, and buttons uh, from the beginning. So the, the, with no mouse, emula- mouse emulation, everything is done with touches. And that's, uh, there's an API that lets you get the raw touches, but there's also controls that, have, um, that are touch-enabled. So there's a touch button, uh, which inherits from a WPF button, and actually I, I might be, I, I think it's called a surface button, actually. But surface, it, button. It, it, surface button. So it inherits from a WPF button, and it processes the touch events. And, you know, it, it, it knows when one is, one is pressed and one is not. The, the, the big difference between coding against a multi-touch API and a mouse API is that with a mouse, you actually always have an X and Y coordinate. And things like hover effects or mouse over effects are extremely useful for usability. Whereas with Surface and, and multi-touch, you, you don't have that contextual information. Also, by the nature of the vision processing system, the touches come in and out of existence. When people first use it, they often find that the shadow from their palm is creating touches that they're not anticipating. So you almost have to do uh, sort of you know, noise processing uh, you know, to, you don't want to process every single touch. It's pretty interesting that you have to do that as a developer. That that the API doesn't doesn't filter out that kind of stuff. So so it does. When, like I said, there there are uh, surface specific controls that handle all of that for you. Okay. So for example, a surface a surface list box uh, handles the sort of touch and pull scrolling that you'd find on like an iPhone, um, and it handles all the 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 sort of noise processing and and you don't have to worry about any of the contact stuff. Now, if you were to, you know, so for example, some of the stuff I did was how do you show 3D? What does a multi-touch manipulation mean in 3D space? Is it a pan? Is it a rotate? Is it a zoom? And, you know, some of those issues, when I created that, I, I sort of had to address those from scratch and, and do the contact processing myself. Now, they do provide a a uh, a component, which they call a manipulation processor, which basically is a class that sort of handles that noise filtering for you. So for my 3D surface, I wanted to sort of treat, if, if I was in a pan operation, I wanted to essentially treat all the contacts, all the touches, all the multi-touches as sort of one uh, virtual touch. And the, the manipulation processor allows me to associate, associate contacts with that processor, and then I can subscribe to events on that processor, like rotate or zoom, or uh, or pan. So it even it even knows when you're spreading your fingers apart, or if you're rotating them around. So what is um, the what is a gesture? <laughs> what is a gesture? So uh, uh, one of the things where it is somewhat light is, and I'm not sure how they would necessarily provide core gestures, but the idea of a gesture would be some kind of motion with your hand that uh, would be recognized. Yeah. Right. So out of the box, they sort of provide a tap gesture, um, which, you know, you could use for clicking buttons. Like, let's say you have a, a again, I'll use the list box as an example. How do you distinguish between um, when a list box item is, when you're just clicking on one to drill into it, or if you're just clicking on the surface of the, the list box to scroll it? So it has the concept of a, of a tap gesture, where if your your fingers down and uh, you know it is spatially confined x and y, 
and then you lift up, that's a tap. Or there's a, you know, a flick gesture where you, you know, touch and move your finger quickly as you lift. Uh, so so there's, there's really only a couple of sort of um, things that are defined as gesture. But there's nothing preventing you from, you know, doing your own sort of gesture recognition. I mean, you can add a, a surface-enabled ink canvas to uh, an application, and you, you basically do stroke uh, analysis as you would on a, a normal WPF app as well. And I've actually done that uh, for one of the apps that I did. I, I got to think that sort of the transcendent moment of, of Surface is when you see a picture being stretched by spreading two fingers apart. I'm just wondering about how much code it takes to recognize that you know, there's two fingers touching a photo and they're moving away from each other, so we should make the photo bigger. Right. So that, that sort of comes back to um, that, this sort of built-in you know, manipulation processor. They actually take it one step further, too, and they provide a control called a scatter view, um, which they, they recognize that the ability to sort of multi-touch manipulate photos and videos um, and other media assets on a two-dimensional surface is, is a common operation. So, you know, the, the, this, the quick demo is you take a scatter view and, uh, you know, bind it to a collection of photos on your hard drive, and immediately you have a, a, a touch-enabled application that lets you multi-touch, resize, and rotate and manipulate. And that actually um, it goes, it's pretty customizable, and it goes pretty far in, in uh, allowing you to rapidly prototype a lot of different scenarios for interacting with media. I'm, I looked at your Virtu, uh, Virtue View uh, uh, video that's on the Internology site, and I presume that's the one you're talking about, that's surface-based 3D, where you actually put the little ball on the screen to rotate the heart? Right. And then I just think it was an interesting solution to the problem of the difference between moving the heart around just to look closer at something, and I actually want to turn it. Right. Initially, I had, uh, my, my, my thought was to, to a single, like if you had a, a single finger down and you moved it around, it would rotate the 3D object. If you had multiple fingers down, it would pan it. And in theory, that, that would have worked. And actually, when I... Um, I, I didn't mention this before, but the SDK comes with a, a simulator, which allows you to uh, emulate the surface behavior on a, um, a, a normal PC. And I had initially done a lot of development on my, on my laptop, just running against the simulator. And when I initially wrote the code, the, the single touch movement for pan and the multi-touch, I mean, the single touch for rotate and the pan worked great. Um, you can you can actually plug in multiple USB mice and it'll recognize them as multiple pointers. Far however, out. However, when I actually uh, put the code onto the surface and started interacting with it, then I, I came into that sort of noise processing uh, issue where touches, where it wasn't really sure if it was a single finger or multiples. Exactly, or or touches were appearing and disappearing. You know, like the image processing would recognize it one split second and not another. So as you dragged a single finger across, sometimes it would be one and sometimes it would be two, and it would do some, some seriously funky stuff. So that, that's, <laughs> that's actually a, a, an interesting example of how you sort of have to, um, you know, rethink how things work on the surface. You really need to, to uh, experiment with your application on the surface throughout development. Um, so like you said in the video, the, the solution I sort of came up with was any, any touch movement on the the surface of the, the 3D view uh, would either be a resize or a, uh, a pan. And I was able to leverage the, the manipulation processor for that. And then um, in order to rotate, you'd have sort of a virtual trackball, which was a, a sphere down in the corner, the checkerboard pattern on it, so that rotations are very obvious. And as you rotate that, the, uh, the three-dimensional object, in, in this case, a heart, in the case of our uh, molecular viewer, a 3D molecule, um, would rotate then. And it's cool, too, because you could have one person sort of rotating while another person uh, zoomed or panned. So. Well, that's where that's a whole other layer I think is amazing of Surface. Is as soon as you have two pairs of hands working on the screen at once, like the computer must go a little nuts. How do you make sure that you're working on the right things? You know, I mean, it, it, the, 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 the typical eventing model seems to work pretty well. You know, you just respond to events. And if an event is attached to one UI object versus another, uh, you know, in, in code, they're happening sequentially, and, and they get queued up, and the, the, the response seems pretty, um, pretty reasonable. 
And I, I highly recommend people go to the Internology site and take a look at this video because there's a point where you pull up a virtual keyboard and then you flipped it around so another set of hands could be typing huh, on it. Cool. It's just stunning. It, there should be a link to it on our on our homepage, which is www.internology.com. I n t e r k n o w l o g y dot com. I know that we have it, the videos and uh, some of our uh, sample apps, including some Silverlight work we've done, um, hosted on another URL, which is silverlight.internology.com. It started out just as a showcase for our Silverlight stuff, but it's expanded to include other showcases. We've yet to move it to a more appropriate URL, like labs.internology.com. But for now, silverlight.internology.com. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. You know, it's been a while since we talked about Surface on the show. We, we talked about it a bit when it was first announced and first shown at Mix. But, uh, and back then they, they only had like a few units and you couldn't really get your hands on one. And uh, do you happen to know like what, if, if somebody wanted to do Surface development, what they would have to do to to get one of these boxes and to actually start doing it? You know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a expert on the licensing stuff. I, I know that um, in order to get the SDK, you need to um, have a physical unit. Um, typically, I believe the idea is that when you, uh, if an organization were to purchase one or more units, and I believe there, there might be a minimal requirement of number, but you mm-hmm. would get uh, something like five times the number of devices, you would get five times that SDKs to... Use. Interesting. So the SDK you mentioned that you can use this with an emulator. How do you emulate touches on on a regular machine that doesn't have the cameras and all that? How does that? Okay, work? Well, that that that's that's a that's a great question. So when before when I when I described there was sort of the two different layers. There was that core layer, which is typically be leveraged by uh, a technology like XNA or the the higher level image process. Um, API, which would be is generally um, leveraged via WPF uh, on the em- on the emulator, the simulator. You do not get um, access to that raw camera data. It's only sort of it's faked, you know, post process data. It, it gives you a toolbar that lets you do some interesting things, like control whether or not you're putting a finger down or a blob. Uh, you can control uh, the orientation of the finger. So there's a virtual finger. It's a it's a cursor that sort of looks like a, like a the end of a finger in a line drawing. Huh. But you're able you're able to if I if I left click, which simulates pressing my finger down, and then right click, it will release that icon uh, and treat it as though a finger is being held against the surface. Oh, I can so then, then you can do another finger. Exactly, or or you can use multiple mice like I described before. But if, you, if you're working on some kind of complex uh, gesture or you're working on, you know, seeing if you could rotate at the same time you, you, you move something across the surface, you can actually place multiple touches so that they're all sort of touching at once and then rubber band them with, a, you know, a Photoshop-like rubber band tool and then manipulate them as a, as a group and rotate them as a group and scale them as a group. And it actually even goes a step further and lets you record those manipulations so you don't have to repeat them every, you know, time you hit F5. Oh, that's cool. That is cool. It's very interesting. I've only watched Kevin mostly over his shoulder and stuff during development, but then lately I've been dabbling in it. And I find that there's these three levels of development in the cycle there. You you can start, you can actually run your, your Surface app on your PC through Visual Studio without the simulator, and it just shows up as a top-level window. However, there's not much interaction. You can't really, you're not simulating the your finger touches and all that, but you can use that kind of as a rudimentary way to just get the layout working, right? So mm-hmm. you've got your buttons in the right places and things look good. 
and then I was uh, then I would fire up the simulator as sort of level two, and then now you can kind of see how do the touches interact with it, and uh, where you might need to add some extra logic for touch processing and things. And then obviously the third one is now you need to go uh, down the hall and haul the surface over to your PC. You know, plug it in. You have an external monitor, et cetera. So you have the actual surface hardware sitting right there, and then you can you know run your app in Visual Studio and and play with it and hit breakpoints and things like that. Dan brings up a good point. You, you, you can actually run it without the simulator. And the simulator, while it lets you do, do a lot of testing, some of the things like I described before about the touches sort of coming and going when you don't expect them, it also does some serious low-level uh, Windows hackery to uh, get these applications to sort of run in its own space. And when you introduce multiple H-Wins, say if you have... Um, you know, a combo box or something. Oh, actually, there is no service combo box, but a menu where it's, you know, some of the controls being rendered in, in, a, in a different window. Um, it, it, it starts to, to create issues. Um, but you can run it without the simulator. The, the challenge there is that there, there's no way of, of firing the touch events. Um, however, the, the, the controls that come out of the box, including the scatter view, um, have been written to support mouse manipulations as well. Uh, so that you are able to do some limited testing uh, without running the simulator even. Well, and talking about the SDK brings us to a special announcement that we have to make, doesn't it, Richard? Yeah, the Surface folks uh, let us know that uh, for anyone going to PDC that attends the Developing for Microsoft Surface session being presented by Brad Carpenter and Robert Levy, you will get an opportunity to get a copy of the Surface SDK. So this is really the first chance except for these few partners that have started out here, like Internology, for folks who want to develop in Surface to start getting access to the SDK. It's a start, and I hope we have more Surface shows coming up. I'm talking to the Surface team. Uh, I think we'll, uh, we'll have some cool stuff to talk about in the future. Yeah. That's, it. That's awesome. It'll be interesting to see what uh, you know, subset of the API they, they present, but at a minimum, I'd imagine you'd get the... Uh, the simulator and uh, the, some of the cool controls like ScatterView lets you rapidly prototype some. Well, in the XNA point, you know, XMA I always thought of as Xbox development. Uh, it's pretty low-level stuff. That's not normal stuff for a .NET developer, is it? I mean, it is, it is a managed interface to uh, the, uh, the graphics, the low-level graphics stuff. Um, you know, it's, it, it's written primarily to uh, sort of hobbyist Xbox developers, and a lot of the um, the class names and stuff make that obvious. For example, instead of a application class like you have in in WinForms or WPF, you have a game class as the the sort of root. So it's very obvious that it, it's designed um, to make game development easy for uh, the the sort of hobbyist developer or someone who does business d- development by day and you know writes games for their kids at night or something like that. Um, but you know the 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 challenge with XNA is that uh, the complexities with getting graphics um with 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 sort of the the stuff that people expect to see in games characters walking the amount of effort it takes to make a character walk around across the screen today is significant and, and a lot of the work is is in the is on the art side and, and creating 3D models and uh, you know figuring out how to animate them and such so the APIs themselves aren't terribly hard, um, but you know, in order to create you know a lot of compelling content, you often need to you know engage with someone who has experience doing you know high end three D development. Um, Huckabee tells us that uh, Internology has an interesting way to keep above the cutting edge curve while accomplishing some Skunk Works projects. <laughs> it's called Recess, apparently. What is that all about? Uh, yeah, so I'll jump on that one. So I guess we were we had a, a guy from here, Adam Calderon, who went up to Microsoft and worked on the Prism project for a while. And he, one of the things he came back with was uh, I forget the name and they called it up there, but the the concept is that um, outside of the work that you're doing on a day to day basis with your client or on the, your your main project. Um, it's somewhat worthwhile to spend some time on another project just of your own choosing and try to investigate some other new features of a product or look into something that you otherwise wouldn't have a chance to do. So uh, we came up with this uh, acronym RECESS. I think it stands for Research and Educational Coding to Enhance Software Skills. And so 
the concept is cool. We all uh, we all spend just a tiny bit of time um, per week uh, working on just kind of whatever fascinates us, and uh, we've got some various projects. The one I'm currently working on is kind of fun. We uh, we've always been doing this model view view model uh, idea that you hear about a lot with uh, WPF, and it's kind of a, a morphed version of MVC pattern from the old days, and it's a way to you know, uh, put data in in a certain way, hold it in the view model such that the, it's prepared for the view to bind to and kind of keep the separation between the view and the view model and the logic all separated. Um, so I, I thought, well, it'd be the holy grail idea there is that you could attach different views to the same view model and without hardly any coding, you just slap another view in there and you have another kind of UI on top of the same underlying plumbing. So we came up with the idea to write a game in, uh, in many different platforms using a single view model, uh, technique. So we're basically writing, we started out small. We're just doing a simple game of go fish, but we are, uh, we're writing it in, let's see how many platforms we're doing it in. Uh, we're doing, somebody's going to dive in and do wind forms, but we're seeing who has to go do that. But we're doing it in WPF, Silverlight, Surface, Mobile, and XNA. And the goal there is that the same view model hierarchy of uh, various view models for different views that you need, but the idea here is that you reuse the same plumbing and all the same controller and model view, view model patterns, but all you do is have a different view, which is implemented in its own technology. You know, you have the Silverlight view, you have the, we might even do an ASP.NET with Ajax view, you know, the Surface one, so... We've got, it's fun. We've got the rudimentary version working on uh, WPF and Surface now, and you can it uses all kinds of fun stuff on the back end, WCF, to do peer-to-peer communication and uh, playing Go Fish with your coworkers uh, after hours is always fun. <laughs> so every Wednesday after lunch, we all kind of get in a room and BS about new technologies or thing, things we read on blogs or how our, our projects are coming up, and I... I I'm not working with Dan on the the project that he just described, but uh, every every week they they seem to have interesting conversations and lessons learned and stuff. Dan, what are some of those things that like you guys have struggled with and and, and figured out? Yeah, so one of the things that we sort of glossed over when we first started this idea was that um, the, that the view model that is going to be the housing for all the data that you want to display in a view better only use the lowest common denominator of class libraries and things that are available to all the technologies, right? Right. So um, we quickly found that, like, say, mobile, for example, which is based on Windows Forms, doesn't have something uh, that we take for granted every day now, like observable collection. So in a WPF app, you almost always want to use, in your view models, observable collections because they will notify when there are changes to the collection. And so a list box, say, will show up with new data in it when the underlying collection, you know, something is added to it. So we, we've we had to kind of do some fancy footwork, and we've got, uh, for a seemingly easy game of Go Fish, we've got all these levels of of class libraries and things that each in their own right only contain the things that their derived class libraries can use and a bunch of uh, virtual methods and virtual properties and things that as you go up the hierarchy chain, you can introduce technology-specific things that are only good for your, you know, in your in your view of the world. So uh, I guess we've sort of proven to ourselves that the holy grail that you can use a single view model across any any view in any technology is not true, but within certain uh, circles of technology, it is certainly possible. Excellent. We've also tried to uh, we've tried to experiment with uh, the pris- some of the prism techniques of working on loosely coupled apps. A lot of the old um, cab framework ideas that that a view uh, of some data or a, or a piece of a view way down low in the visual tree in a WPF app, for example shouldn't really know too much, if anything, about, uh, you know, all its surroundings. And so the idea is that you, you want to loosely couple these, these views such that they only know about an interface that they're given, and they have no idea where they've been placed in relationship to each other or their parents or their children. So we've done a bunch of work, in, uh, not so, also in the recess project, but uh, in the main project as well, to, 
to try to uh, formalize some patterns around, you know, always using interfaces to kind of inject some dependencies on, on views so that during rapid prototyping, when you want to come along and rip a piece out and say, well, during usability studies, we found that this view doesn't make sense here. We want to move it over here. Well, if that's way up somewhere else in the visual tree and you were dependent on the hierarchy, then you're going to be screwed. So we've gone to great lengths to try to keep it super decoupled and uh, super technology agnostic. So it's been pretty fun. I just love the fact that you're playing card games on a, what, $10,000 table. <laughs> <laughs> that, thought, that, that exact statement came up when we were talking about it. We, we, uh, I think we started saying that we would do poker or something, which seems a little bit, yeah, let's throw some money in the pot and you know we'll, we'll have virtual money flying around. But we wanted to start uh, much smaller, and the game itself is not the, the fun thing. It's, it's actually you know, figuring out all the technology to make this sure. thing work. Well, it paper would be kind of hard. How do you get to hide the cards from everybody? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we actually came up with uh, that's something I'm going to try in the next few weeks here as I dive deeper into the surface. But one idea is that if you have your cards face down, say you're all four of us are sitting around a surface table and they're all face down, but if I detect a gesture of, say, my arm, if I lean down onto the surface, not that this is great usability, but I just want to kind of prove that it'll work. If you lean your arm down and sort of make a motion like you're covering your cards, then they would uh, flip up and show. And then when you take your arm off, they'd, they'd rotate back to face down. That's awesome. Yeah. But that's exactly what you need. That's a whole other kind of gesture there, this sort of cupping of the cards. Exactly. Yep. So I want to kind of use that as an experiment to, to dive in and figure out some of the stuff Kevin was talking about, you know, uh, how to I think to you could make that. some. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, the price, but given that the price came down and people really did have this as a coffee table in their homes, one of the best things you could do with it is literally play board games on it. Sure. And with the, with the, 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 Object recognition stuff with the stickers that you can put on it. You know, you could have a chess set where each chess piece has its own identification sticker on the bottom, and you could think of uh, you know tons of applications for teaching kids how to play chess and um, you know showing different moves that are available for a single one. And you know, you could say that you know that already exists in computer games and something, but there's something uh, you know very different about the tactical tactile experience of working with actual objects. And, yes. you know, for board games and stuff, there's a reason that, you know, I still play board games with my kid instead of, you know, just play video games. Yeah, the physicality, I think, is an interesting part of that. And actually making a game where the physical piece is moving is a a part of the game. Is it, There's a whole other game opportunity there. That's very fascinating, the potential we could have for that. What do you think? I mean, the, the majority of apps that are written on Surface, though, are sort of like kiosks on steroids, would you say? A sort of a... I, I think I think initially. I mean, keep in mind, you know, this is a the idea of of computing against you know flat surfaces without buttons and and, and screens being embedded in all the sort of devices that we use is, is undoubtedly the future. And I think the surface is a a first step in that direction. And you know, the price is high because it's not fully manu. You know, it's not a and number manufacturing thing. It it it's fairly low quantity. Um, and, and most of the uses today at the high, you know, price point are going to be for standalone sort of kiosk-like ap- applications. But I think that's going to change once more people adopt the technology and more people sort of think outside the box. You know, no one, honestly, no one's come up with the the killer app for the Surface yet. Like no one, no I agree. one's really yeah. figured out how to use this multi-touch. I mean, the the apps that chip with it are, are, are cool. I mean, there's the the, the there's three sort of. Um, applications that uh, come with the service and you know if you're going to install it into a retail environment or hotel environment you, you know you presumably you know use these three apps one is a photo slash viewer app one is a um, a concierge app that sort of has a a virtual earth map and and you can find um, nearby businesses and um, get some basic directions and the third app is, is a simple music playing app uh, but you know those are cool uh, you know, it's fun to expand a photo with two fingers, but not for very long. You know, after doing it for <laughs> two minutes, it's like, okay, that was cool. Now I'm ready to do something else. And the same is true of, of, of you know, choosing um, uh, music files or, of you know, looking for directions. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't think anyone's come up with the, the killer app. <laughs> I hope well, I, I also do, wonder I if the, the, the next gener- the the killer app is an integration between this flat horizontal service screen 
and that bigger screen at the other end of the room, the television. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, you can think of all all kinds of sort of media integration. The, honestly, I think one of the one of the coolest things is the object recognition. You know, where you can put your phone down and it, you know it would it would recognize the device and then communicate via um, yeah Bluetooth or something. That is you know, very one of the, cool. One of the challenges at the moment is, like I said, the the, the video the resolution of the the camera data is is not very high resolution, and especially when it's in motion. So the 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 bite tags, the stickers right now, um, I want to say that they're, I'm not good at estimating, but it's probably about three-quarters of an inch uh, by three-quarters of an inch. And in that space, they're only able to get uh, 256 different you know, unique values. So if you want to do a, um, uh, you know, if you want to be able to interact with tons of different devices and have unique identifiers, you can't really do it with the, that uh, with the first version of the stickers. They're working on a second um, set of object recognition tags, which are 128-bit, which would allow for um, you know, a, a much larger number of devices, but not necessarily uh, completely secure authentication mechanism. Um, but I, 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 I honestly haven't seen those yet. I, I, I don't know how large they are or um, how effective they are. Well, guys, we're just about down to the end of the show here. In fact, we're a little over, I think. But uh, is there any last-minute uh, announcements or shout-outs you want to give? Point to some resources, maybe? Uh, not really for me. I think we touched on it. Go to our site, www.internology.com. Check out uh, some of the Silverlight and some videos of the Surface stuff that we've been doing. Internology with a W. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks. This has been a great show. Thanks for talking to us. Awesome. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, guys. Keep doing what you do, and we'll talk to you next time on Diner Rock. Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a